Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to Ask the Mayo Mom. Today we'll look at vaccines for kids. Should they get vaccinated for COVID-19 and the influenza virus? In fact, children right now represent about 25% of the new cases that we're getting of COVID-19 infection. So is the vaccine needed among children? Yes. Currently, children 12 and older are eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. The vaccine has been proven to help prevent children from getting COVID and help reduce the spread of the virus. The vaccine has been shown in trials to give about 95% protection. The vaccine is very effective and very needed by children. They really do uh, benefit from it. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Mackey and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we will be discussing two very important vaccines and also one of my favorite topics, influenza and COVID-19, and why it's important to vaccinate your child when eligible against these serious diseases. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Robert Jacobson, a pediatrician and professor of pediatrics at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Jacobson is also the co-chair of Ask Mayo Expert Knowledge Content Board on Immunizations and Vaccinations, as well as the Medical Director for Primary Care in Southeast Minnesota Immunization Program at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Jacobson, thanks for joining us again, especially about such an important topic and a passion I know that we both share. Yes, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, answering questions and uh, helping people out and making decisions about what's best for themselves and their children. Yes, fantastic. You know, there's been a lot of interest about COVID-19 vaccinations for children. I, for one, cannot wait for the day when my children are eligible for it. So let's let's start with that. Who right. is currently eligible, you know, amongst the, the pediatric, um, the adolescent population for the COVID-19 vaccinations? And which ones are approved um, for children? At this point, every 12-year and older child and adult is eligible and Mayo Clinic recommends all get vaccinated against COVID-19 infection. For those children 12 through um, 17 years of age, uh, we have available and approved for their use the Pfizer mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. For those 18 years and older, we also have the Moderna vaccines and the Johnson & Johnson Janssen vaccine. Okay, so you mostly it sounds like the mRNA vaccine is what is approved um, for the majority of the pediatric population. Can you yes. share with us a little bit about, um, you know, how these mRNA vaccines work? I still, I still hear questions from my patients about this. And so I think this is a really important topic that we want to dispel any misinformation about. Vaccines in general work by getting the human body to respond to a substance to make immunity against an infectious disease. Uh, so the very first vaccines actually gave uh, a form of that virus uh, to the person in a very careful way so that the person would become then immune to the viral infections. Uh, and the first ones were using cowpox virus for smallpox. Mm -hmm. Now the mRNA vaccine uh, is not a living organism uh, and represents a, a real advance in our technology. Really up until this vaccine, our vaccines work primarily by giving a weakened form of a virus such as the chickenpox vaccine or a protein uh, from the viral infection or a version of it like the tetanus toxoid protein. 
And sometimes when we had to, uh, uh, starch or polysaccharide from the Haemophilus influenza or the pneumococcal bacteria, uh, where proteins did not work to give immunity, but the starches did. But this actually uh, is an mRNA, which means that a lot less needs to be given in, a, in a, a form that actually is just the code, if you will, for making the protein inside the body. So the mRNA is uh, vaccinated locally inside uh, a needle into the muscle. And then in the muscle cells, the mRNA enters the cells. And then in the uh, material outside of the nucleus, outside of where the human DNA is kept, um, that mRNA acts as a code for that cell to make protein against the COVID-19 infection. It basically makes those little spikes that we see in the representation of the uh, COVID-19 infection. Um, it makes spikes that don't hurt us, but that our body in turn looks at the spikes and makes immunity that then gives us long-lasting immunity that our body is making from day to day, week to week to fight off the infection. <clears throat> And uh, the mRNA actually disappears rapidly within a few hours. So the mRNA doesn't get into our DNA. It doesn't get into our genes. It doesn't get into our nuclei of our cells. And it doesn't stay long in, um, in the cells uh, outside of the nucleus. It's actually uh, fairly quickly digested. Um, and so it's a really neat way to give us immunity. Um, and we're hoping that within a few years, we might have a similar mRNA vaccine for respiratory syncytial virus or RSV and possibly for influenza. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more news about that in the coming years. Um, one question I hear a lot from families is, is, you know, how effective are the vaccinations in, you know, the 12 and above population, you know, I'll hear families saying, like, is it even worth giving to them? I'm hearing about breakthrough cases um, along those lines. It's actually proven to be persistently really effective. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, uh, right around now, we are seeing across the country and across the world big surges in COVID-19 infection. Uh, I think right now there's only three states have moved away from a high level of infection. Uh, uh, and uh, it's, not, uh, it's not our state, we're still at a very high level. But if you look at the cases, mm -hmm. the hospitalizations and the deaths, they're overwhelmingly happening in the unvaccinated people. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, including children. Uh, in fact, children right now represent about 25% of the ca new cases that we're getting of COVID-19 infection. So is the vaccine needed among children? Yes, they are getting exposed, they are getting infected, and many times becoming symptomatic uh, and, and, and worse, um, even when they're asymptomatic, they can spread it to others. The vaccine um, uh, has been shown in trials to give about 95% uh, uh, protection. And that would uh, go along with the fact that about uh, maybe one in 10 to one out of 20 of uh, the cases that we're seeing now uh, are among the vaccinated rather among the unvaccinated. In fact, in most populations, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are not seeing waning immunity in most people. Uh, uh, the, the waning immunity appears to be 
uh, right now limited to those 65 years and older, those with immunocompromising conditions. Um, and so the boosting that we've been doing uh, has been really focused on mopping up the waning that we're seeing epidemiologically in those groups. The vaccine is very effective and very needed by children. They really do uh, benefit from it. Uh, there's additional benefits. In, in addition to protecting your child from getting sick, uh, in addition to preventing your child from bringing it home and spreading it to loved ones, mm -hmm. it, it, there's also, um, we would handle your child's exposure differently in terms of what do we do if your child has a known significant exposure to COVID-19. Frankly, our physicians and nurses are reporting among the vaccinated who are getting sick, it's a mild form of the disease um, that um, actually resolves more quickly uh, than COVID-19 infections among the unvaccinated. Well, I mean, that is reason alone to convince me to want to get vaccinated. But what would you say to a patient in your office? You know, you have a 16-year-old who is reluctant to get vaccinated um, for various reasons. How would you convince them or what kind of information can be powerful to share with them? The first thing that the 16-year-old and parent needs to hear from me is my strong recommendation for the vaccine. I'm not basing this just on the idea that the vaccine's safe. Mm -hmm. I'm not basing this just on the idea that the vaccine's effective. I'm basing it on the fact that it's needed epidemiologically for that 16-year-old. That is, we have data showing 16-year-olds are at risk and benefit from the vaccine, and that we don't have alternatives. Mm -hmm. We are seeing uh, these cases, despite masking and social distancing, um, we don't have an alternative to protect your 16-year-old. Um, I do think it's important for providers and nurses to make sure our patients and their parents get the questions they have answered. A good third of us are eager to get the vaccine. A middle third of us are complacent. We'll get the vaccine if it's easy enough to give. And uh, when we show up at a doctor's office or we walk through uh, the clinic and find out that they're doing walk-in vaccines, we'll get it. Uh, if they do it in the workplace, they'll get it. Do it in the schools, they'll get it. But th these people aren't making appointments for it. There's another third of us who just have questions. Is it really right for me? And frankly, um, a lot of my parents just need to hear, oh, you've thought about my six-year-old who has this conditions on this medicine, and you still think that person should get it. Or mm -hmm. despite that reaction that child had previously to another, uh, uh, to another medicine, you still think the child should get it. So I urge parents who have questions about their particular child situation to reach out to a healthcare provider. Yeah, absolutely. We love answering these questions and having these discussions with families. Um, one discussion that I have had, uh, not too often, but occasionally, is about the reports of the really rare myocarditis in males um, after mostly the second dose of the mRNA vaccine. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this, uh, maybe the evidence behind the FDA's review of this, and, and why, are, why should we still vaccinate you know, young, um, healthy adult males against COVID-19? You know, uh, it from the early publications from the CDC to as recently as a publication, I believe in New England Journal of Medicine yesterday, what we know about this myocarditis and, um, and a related um, phenomenon called pericarditis is that it does appear to occur following an mRNA vaccine, um, such as the COVID vaccine, 
but very rarely. And it's transient. It goes away and it's mild. For the most part, it's mild. Um, it's the myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle, primarily occurs in male adolescents and young adults. Who, um, and it really occurs in the first few days of vaccination, more commonly with the second dose. And most respond to medications and rest. Uh, the pericarditis, which is an inflammation in the membrane around the heart, uh, tends to occur in older uh, uh, males. Um, the reason why this is not a showstopper, a deal breaker uh, for mRNA vaccines against COVID is the absolute rarity and mildness of this myocarditis. Um, we need to think about the epidemiology, that is, how frequently is COVID-19 happening in this age group? Let's take males 12 to 17 years of age. Over the next four months, if those males were to skip the second dose of the vaccine, um, there would be about 5,700 cases of COVID-19 in these people who had already got, got one dose but didn't get that second dose over the next four months. That's nearly 6,000 cases of COVID-19 infection. And that's going to result in about 250 hospitalizations. And about a third of them, about 70, will be ICU, intensive care unit admissions, uh, where they need one-on-one -on -one nursing. And in fact, these 6,000 cases causing 200 hospitalizations and 70 ICU stays will result in about two deaths in this age group, 12 to 17 years of age. And we're only talking about the next four months if the, those people 12 to 17 years of age skip that second dose of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. It turns out if if they did get that, we would prevent all those cases, hospitalizations, ICU stays and deaths, and get about 56 to 69 cases of myocarditis, which again are temporary, mild, um, and, and, and frankly uh, are, are overshadowed by the COVID-19 infection prevented. So the math dramatically supports parents getting their children vaccinated rather than avoiding them for fear of myocarditis. And frankly, parents need to be aware, lots of viral illnesses can cause this myocarditis. Mm -hmm. um, we've been seeking it out after vaccination more aggressively, but many times we find the cause of the myocarditis, myocarditis was not due to the vaccine. That's very good, very good news to hear. Um, I love how you you put it in terms of numbers too, and and also thinking about um, how not getting that vaccine may affect other people too is an also a really important thing as um, as we all care about you know our our. our the people around us, our communities, our loved ones and stuff. And if we can kind of try to slow transmission amongst the people that maybe don't have good immune systems, it's, it seems like such a valuable step, especially loved ones, older grandparents, people that you, like you mentioned, have the waning immunity. Yes. So you had talked a little bit about how in that older than 65 year old population and immunosuppressed population that um, boosters have been recommended. Let's talk a little bit more about um, the CDC director's recent um, uh, decision to recommend boosters. Which groups are currently recommended to be getting the boosters of the um, Pfizer COVID-19 mRNA vaccine? I, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanna um, talk about uh, the, 
the, the recent recommendation and the one that preceded it. We had a recommendation that preceded it for a third priming dose for those who are immunocompromised uh, and, and have a moderate or severe immunocompromise. Um, those people, if they had previously received the Pfizer or the Moderna mRNA vaccines uh, and completed two doses, were to get a third dose 28 days later. That wasn't a booster, but so much um, done so that those people immunocompromised would have a better chance of responding to the vaccine. Now, more recently, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is organized by the CDC um, reviewed the epidemiology of waning immunity to COVID-19 from the vaccines. Um, and they identified two groups who need boosting six months after completing the priming series. And the first group are those 65 years and older. Um, we have similar issues with other vaccines where uh, the immune response is not as vigorous and there's more of a tendency to wane over time. Uh, one of them is the um, influenza, and, and now the new recommendations um, for influenza vaccine really uh, direct us not to vaccinate people 65 years and older in, Jul in July or August, uh, because there might actually be waning of the flu vaccine uh, through the rest of the season, which in Minnesota can last till April or May. Um, <clears throat> And so uh, this was not that surprising that six months after completing the priming series, these adults are, are needing that dose. The second group are those 50 to 64 years of age with underlying medical conditions. Um, and uh, there a whole gamut of those, including uh, uh, adults who have cancer, chronic kidney disease, uh, uh, chronic lung diseases, including uh, COPD and emphysema, people who have uh, moderate to severe asthma that requires daily medication, uh, people with cystic fibrosis, uh, yeah, uh, I, people under the age of 65 who have dementia or other neurologic conditions, uh, adults 18, uh, 650 to 64 have diabetes or Down syndrome, uh, other heart conditions, HIV infection, um, immunocompromised. So those people completed the third priming dose six months later, again, need this booster. Uh, people with liver disease and, and frankly, people are overweight uh, or obese um, in that age group of 50 to 64 should also get the vaccine. Now, you mentioned the CDC director and as was her prerogative, uh, uh, she did add two other recommendations that are um, uh, of people who may get a booster. Uh, these include people 18 to 49 years of age uh, with underlying medical conditions uh, and those 18 to 64 years of age who are at risk because uh, um, of their occupational or institutional uh, settings such as healthcare, schools, correctional facilities or homeless shelters. And, and, and frankly, I I'm, would be amiss if I didn't mention some other medical conditions uh, for those 50 to 65 years of age, including those who are pregnant pregnant or were pregnant in the last month or half, mm -hmm. those with sickle cell or other, uh, or, uh, other uh, blood disorders such as thalassemia, smokers, both those current and former, those who have had a transplant, um, and those who have suffered a stroke. Um, it also includes those who suffer from a substance abuse disorder. These people all seem to be at much higher risk for both COVID-19 infection and their complications. And that's why there's this special booster uh, for this uh, group of 50 to 64 year olders. 
So there has been a lot of misinformation, maybe um, in different locations about the COVID vaccine causing deaths in um, in people after they've gotten that. Can you t explain how um, the government has been monitoring the safety of this vaccine um, and watching for any severe associations such as deaths or, or other things? We have a number of ways that we watch for these outcomes uh, to make sure that they're not happening. And I can assure you and your listeners, uh, there has been no uh, causal link to any deaths due to this other than, um, other than, and, and when I say other than, we need to know anaphylaxis, if not treated, can cause death. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we take that very seriously. And we do have some very rare um, uh, risk of uh, thrombosis in certain age groups with Johnson Johnson that could lead to death. Uh, but there, there is not this uh, large number of deaths that are being claimed due to the vaccine. Um, uh, in fact, um, we have a passive adverse events reporting system that allows people to report anything that occurs after vaccination. Um, it collects uh, from providers, manufacturers, as well as people have received the vaccine, parents of children have received the vaccine, frankly, neighbors and um, others could report to this passive adverse events reporting system. Now they're investigated um, and we have a group that actually investigates um, called our vaccine safety data link. It's a group of organizations across the US, healthcare organizations have agreed in an ongoing way to investigate uh, adverse events from vaccines. Um, and they actually link the vaccine records of about 15% of us across the country with our medical records and can actually look at the uh, coroner reports and look at the medical records as well as the vaccine records to really make sure um, you got the vaccine or didn't, uh, and then the rates of death be with and without the vaccine, we're not seeing an increase in deaths among the vaccinated. In fact, we're seeing a decrease mm -hmm. because it, overall, it's having a huge effect preventing the deaths from COVID-19 infection. So overall, mathematically, those who get vaccinated are at less risk of dying than those who are unvaccinated. Uh, we wouldn't be vaccinating if it was otherwise. Uh, and we have, uh, through the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, and then this uh, second vaccine safety data link, a very scientific way to look at side effects and, and uh, link them to real records to make these recommendations and decisions. Excellent, so just to sum up, if you get the COVID vaccine, you are less likely to die. And the COVID vaccine has not been linked with any deaths. Right. We've okay. got to recognize that um, we have ways of looking at this when people claim, well, I can look at the vaccine adverse events report and say, oh, look, 15,000 deaths have been reported. Uh, those are not causal links. Those are just reports that now we have to deal with, investigate. Uh, they occurred uh, after the vaccination, but when investigated are not due to the vaccination. Excellent. Thanks for clarifying that. Okay, we'll move on to the last question about COVID before we get on to influenza since influenza season is coming soon too. Um, 
I mentioned earlier, I am very eager to get my children vaccinated. They are within that five to eight year um, age range. Um, and I know Pfizer has just announced that it has submitted data um, to the FDA regarding their trials in this age group. Can you tell us what we know about their research and any idea when vaccines will be available for children? Yes, this was very exciting news. Uh, we heard a press release uh, about a week ago that Pfizer um, had completed its trial with children five to 11 years of age. This is a phase three trial, which means that they are ready, Pfizer staff is ready to submit this to the Food and Drug Administration. Now, what they reported in their news release is they studied about 2,268 children, five to 11 years of age, um, and these children received a 10 microgram dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I've received the Pfizer vaccine. I got 30 micrograms, as did anyone who's 12 years and older and got the Pfizer dose. So the Pfizer company with its partner, BioNTech, uh, tested a, 10, uh, a 30 microgram dose, a 20 microgram dose, and a 10 microgram dose in five to 11 year olds. And they found out the 10 microgram dose worked just as well and uh, didn't produce any more reactions than what we were seeing in 16 to 25 years of age. So they are recommending a 10 microgram dose. And that's what they used in this last trial, this phase three with 2,268 children. And what they found among these children is they produced the same antibody levels as people who got three times the dose who are 16 to 25 years of age. Um, and it was just as safe with no more reactions than, and the same sort of reactions that 16 to 25 year olders are getting. So um, Pfizer is confident that with the submission um, uh, and with the trial sounding like this, uh, I, I, I expect uh, that the FDA will soon in a matter of weeks make an approval, an emergency authorization approval for this vaccine in that age group. Now, the next step after that would be for that advisory committee on immunization practices uh, to review the safety, efficacy, and the need and the lack of alternative, and then make that recommendation. Because the FDA licenses or approves the manufacture of the vaccine, it is the ACIP that makes the recommendation that we adhere to. Um, I'll give you an other example just to make this clear. The FDA has licensed as safe and effective about 25 vaccines in the United States that we currently do not recommend their use. They're safe, they're effective, but they're not needed. A good example of that is the plague vaccine. We have a vaccine against the bubonic plague, but our children do not get a routine vaccination against the bubonic plague. It's safe and effective, it's not needed. Very different case for vaccines like influenza and COVID-19. They're needed. We don't mm -hmm. have alternatives that work just as well. So we have the ACIP make a recommendation to use or not. And that's why we have uh, vaccines that are licensed but not recommended. Excellent. Well, let's move on to talking about uh, influenza. Thank you for all the information on the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, as, as you know, and I think many of people listening to it, the influenza burden last year was really quite small across the United States and frankly, across the world. Um, why was that? And what do we expect for this coming year? Will it be different? Are we expecting potentially a larger case burden? About mid-March in uh, 2020, influenza appeared to disappear. 
Uh, and we were testing for it in Minnesota mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you, you know, we, we knew at that time that uh, uh, what might be a respiratory illness could be COVID-19, could be influenza. I, and frankly, when we heard it disappear around the world and continue to disappear over the Southern Hemisphere in the summer, we began to suspect it was just the, the public health implications of COVID-19 must have shut down testing all over the world. That turned out not to be the case. All across the Southern Hemisphere, just as we were testing for flu, they were as well, because flu and COVID-19 can often present with the same symptoms, and they just weren't seeing any. It turns out the masking and lockdown had a bigger effect on influenza than it did COVID-19. Uh, while it certainly works to help protect us against COVID-19 infection, it all but stopped influenza. Now we have seen more recently in the last few months across the world, some influenza B activity. We vaccinate against influenza B and experts around the world are frightened that going a year and a half without much influenza activity may have stopped the subclinical boosting that we know occurs um, because any year, uh, one-tenth to one-twentieth of us get sick with the flu. Another one-tenth to one-twentieth of us, no, one-fifth to one-tenth of us get the flu and don't have symptoms that we recognize as the flu. And we get immunity from that, if, even if we weren't vaccinated. Um, well, all that went away for a year and a half. So experts are fearful that flu is going to come back like a Mack truck and run us over. Uh, and the problem with the flu is not only can make you very ill, uh, mm -hmm. even for healthy young adults, it can knock them out so they can't work. Uh, it can send them to a doctor's office uh, unnecessarily. Um, it can do worse for young children. It can send them to hospital and can do the same for uh, older individuals. Uh, so we vaccinate against the flu. There's another reason to vaccinate against the flu this year. Uh, we don't have the healthcare staff to take care of you. Uh, all across the country, all across the world, nurses and providers um, just are overwhelmed. Uh, hospitals are shut down, can't take new admissions. Uh, ICU beds are closing up. We can't afford more more disease. There's a third reason why we all should get vaccinated against the flu, and that is it looks just like COVID-19 mm -hmm. when it presents with a cough, a sore throat, and a fever. If you tell me that you've had a, a new onset fever and sore throat, I'm going to get you COVID tested. Uh, if you tell me that you got a new cough, I'm going to get you COVID tested. That's the right thing to do. Why deal with flu causing those look-alike symptoms. Help us help you out uh, and avoid unnecessary testing. Get the flu vaccine. All of us should get it as soon as we turn six months of age. Uh, those of us who are just getting it for the first time and less than nine years of age will need two doses a month apart. Um, those of us who won't turn six months until later in the season will catch you up then. Uh, we at Mayo will continue to vaccinate through May and June until we're out of vaccine uh, because we know that there is some flu activity almost every month uh, and uh, we actually see outbreaks in our schools and long-term care facilities through May. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I, I really strongly urge all of your listeners to get themselves, their loved ones or children vaccinated against influenza this year.
And timing, you alluded to timing in the summer, July and August, not as helpful for those over age 65. What about timing for other people? For children, uh, it, you could make an, uh, an argument, uh, particularly if you're less than nine years of age, to get that first dose in July or August if it's available for you. Uh, for pregnant women, who are going to deliver in September or October, there's actually good logic for them to get vaccinated while pregnant rather than wait until October when they've uh, born their baby uh, because they will actually give their baby immunity against flu for up to six months. It's just nice for the baby because mm -hmm. the baby can't get her vaccine until she turns six months. Mm -hmm. um, for most of us, uh, the advice is get the flu vaccine when it becomes available to you. Don't put it off. Perfect. And I know it's available across the country at many locations already. So um, people can, you know, call, call their, their provider's office. They can go to their local pharmacies. I mean, vaccines are readily available. Um, let's talk just a little bit about briefly about the types of vaccines. A lot of questions I hear from parents are, can they get the, the nasal um, vaccine this year? Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I'm a strong advocate for the nasal vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, this is called flu mist by brand and sometimes referred to as a live attenuated uh, influenza vaccine. Uh, it involves a squirt in each nostril of an, a cold adapted weakened form of the flu virus for each of the four strains. So it covers the same strains that uh, we cover with the injected. Um, for children, and adults two through 49 years of age who have no immunocompromising condition, it works just as well. Um, and it avoids a shot, uh, which is nice. Uh, there are some people who don't like things squirted up their nose and prefer a shot. There's others of us who would rather get a spray up the nose than a shot and we prefer the spray. Mm -hmm. And frankly, if I was under the age of 50, I'd be getting the nose spray. Um, <laughs> Sounds I have good. all the respect in the world for shots uh, as vaccines, but if I could get sprayed up my nose, I'd go that route. Um, there are other groups that probably shouldn't get the flu vaccine. Um, uh, people who are under the age of uh, five with asthma, uh, people who are pregnant, should not get the, this live flu vaccine. They should get the injected form instead. Um, but I think if you're eligible and it's available, you should get it. Now, big problem for us is how do we do the nasal spray in mass vaccination clinics. Um, when we're lining up a whole bunch of chil children to get their flu vaccine today in schools, as we do at Mayo Clinic across our school systems, um, we got a problem. We can't be having the children take out their masks to get a nose spray that might cause them to cough or sneeze. We, we're giving the injected form in schools just because we can't have the unmasking and masking the sneezing and coughing. Uh, but if they come into my office this fall and they're due for the flu vaccine, um, I'm going to offer that live vaccine uh, with just as much vigor as I would the injected vaccine because study after study has repeatedly shown that it works just as well. I feel very confident about that nasal spray. Excellent. Many uh, delighted parents to hear that, <laughs> that information. Um, last question, because we can't continue to talk about influenza without talking about COVID-19 um, because it's just such a reality. Um, can people get the vaccine co-administered at the same time, meaning getting influenza and the COVID-19 vaccine together? Yes, this, I'm glad you asked this. This is actually the most common question I've been getting this last week. Mm -hmm. um, and the question has its origins in the fact that when COVID-19 vaccines were first rolled out, 
we didn't know much about them and they were studied in their trials without other vaccines being given. Now, because of VAERS and the, um, the vaccine safety data link, we actually know that giving, it at, giving the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time as any other vaccine, it works just as well. The other vaccine works just as well and there's no increase in side effects or reactions. Um, that also goes for getting it within 14 days, either before or after. So the old rule of avoiding simultaneous vaccination with the COVID-19 vaccine is off the books now. We no longer adhere to that at Mayo Clinic or across the United States. You can get your flu vaccine at the same day you get your COVID-19 vaccine or within days of getting that. And that goes for you adults who are getting boosters for one reason or another as well. Uh, you can get your COVID-19 vaccine, your flu vaccine, other vaccines you're due all on the same day or within days of each other. That's such a great way to end. Do you have any other other thoughts, Dr. Jacobson, other than just encourage everyone to who's eligible to get the vaccinated against these these diseases that are going to continue to circulate in our communities? That that would be my my key message for all. Everyone six months and older needs to get their flu vaccine this year. We don't know what's coming, but it would really help if you do. Uh, everybody 12 years and older needs to get their COVID-19 vaccination now. If you're due for a booster and recommend it, get your booster. Um, parents, please watch for the information about your five to 11 year olders. We hope to have information for a recommendation by Halloween. And I'm hoping by the end of the year, we have recommendations for even younger children uh, based on trial data that should be uh, ready by then. So parents need to stay tuned. And parents, if you're hesitant, don't stew in that hesitancy. Contact your healthcare provider. Uh, either talk over the phone or chat by electronic portal or make a visit in person. This is a matter of life and death. Absolutely. Well said. And I am very excited to be getting my children their influenza vaccine at school. Thanks to you, Dr. Jacobson, for all your work on our school linked immunization programs. So hopefully other people have opportunities to take advantage of this across the United States as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful, um, as always. Thank you, everyone who listened. Remember, get your vaccine scheduled today and have a great day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.